that time we dig back in to the Word of God. We'll be uh, picking back up with the second missionary journey there in Greece. Paul will be leaving Athens for the next ministry venue, which will be Corinth. Uh, a lot to learn here in his visit. We'll cover that uh, this morning, not before we ask the Lord for his help. Father God, we always do need your help in spiritual matters for sure. Father God, Jesus taught us in John chapter 15 and verse 5, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, Father, <laughs> we're calling on you. We recognize our dependence upon God. These are spiritual truths. They're spiritually discerned, so we need the Holy Spirit to interpret them to our spirit. God, thank you for being here with us and help us to be encouraged today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Ever feel like you just kind of dropped the ball? <laughs> like you've underperformed in an area that normally you're used to seeing good results. Well, you walk away from such an experience feeling a little stung. You know, you, you know, you know your God-given potential to do better, and you, you kind of can't wait for a do-over so you can knock it out of the proverbial park, as we say. Now, I wonder, as I mentioned last week, if Paul was feeling a little bit like that. Following his impassioned speech he gave before the esteemed philosophers there in Athens on Mars Hill of all places, his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that got a very awkward, lackluster response, as we saw, didn't we? He makes this compelling case for one creator God who made everything and gives life to everybody. And afterwards, what happened? A ho-hum reaction, quote, a few people responded. That's not at all what he's used to seeing after he preaches. And so Paul leaves Athens, as I already told you. He's headed 50 miles west uh, to Corinth, a very famous uh, place in the New Testament, of course, with two letters addressed to the Corinthians. And so there's no church there now, but there's going to be once he gets there. Uh, he's surely hoping on his way there to, to, to make a bigger impact, have a greater influence over their lives with God's help the next time he opens his mouth for the Lord. No doubt on his way to Corinth, he's reflecting and he's prayerful. It's like, okay, let's go over this. Uh, what, what did I say at Mars Hill? Well, he was going to realize what? That his entire focus of his speech was trying to prove the existence of one creator, God, and calling them out for their foolish idolatry. That's it. He didn't have time to get to Jesus. He didn't mention Jesus uh, or the cross or the death on our behalf or God's love or the plan of salvation. Most likely, he was surely getting there. But uh, he mentioned resurrection. He got interrupted and his allotted time was over. That's how it goes sometimes. But you know what he's going to tell the Corinthians in his first letter and chapter two? He's going to say, oh, when I was coming to Corinth and I was going to see you guys, I was determined never to do that again. In fact, I determined that I was going to focus on Christ, the cross, 
the fact that he died for our sins and that forgiveness and eternal life was available to anyone who calls on his name. And that made all the difference, didn't it? Because there, he left behind no church in Athens. But he's coming to a place where he's going to preach the gospel and there will be a thriving church there founded in Corinth. Debating has its place, but it's the gospel that has the power to save. So now we're going to check out little block by block his time in that illustrious city, infamous for its sensuality and depravity, Corinth. Verse 1. After his time at Mars Hill and his time in Athens, after that, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila. That's an important friendship now. A native of Pontus, which is back in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. I'll tell you why. Paul went to see these two, this couple, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath, the day of worship, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks about coming to their Messiah. Jesus, let's pause there. Paul arrives in Corinth. And of all Paul's spiritual children, um, these guys are the problem child church. All right. Uh, they have a lot of problems and struggles living out their new life. Um, and you're about to learn why that's the case. And so Corinth, major city there in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was at the crossroads there, a, a seaport, a busy intersection of trade and travel, the perfect place to evangelize because there's a church there. It's like a feeder vein and uh, perfect for spreading the good news. So Corinth was quite the place. Now, you, you have these twin cities. Athens was famous for its intellectual, uh, academic... Uh, uh, it was a famous academic city, really, and Corinth was famous too, but it was notorious for being self-indulgent, decadent, and given over to hedonism. Hedonism, of course, is like a party animal, just lives for pleasure. So really, here you have the two classic things that really blind men's souls and uh, contribute to them perishing, intellectual pride, and sensual uh, immorality and lust. These are the twin vices uh, that will take a soul uh, down. And so, um, yeah, the, the, it was so bad in Corinth, the sexual immorality. Uh, in fact, in classical Greek, they coined a verb to Corinthianize, and it meant to live sexually promiscuously. And so, no worries, it's all legit under the worship of their goddess of sex, uh, Aphrodite. She was a fertility goddess, and they had a thousand, historians say, 1,000 temple prostitutes who worked the streets every single night in a form of, of satanic worship. So, if you take the combined CD aspects of Vegas and Mardi Gras and Amsterdam and Hollywood, uh, you'd get Corinth. One writer, G. Campbell Morgan, 
pointed out, he said, if you want to know what it was like outside the front door of that would-be church, uh, (laughs) all you have to do is read Romans chapter 1 because Paul wrote Romans in Corinth. And so perhaps he was gazing out the window when he described what pagan cities were like uh, back in the first century there, Romans chapter 1, for your reading pleasure. Uh, So an ideal place, that said, for a church. Uh, Where else to plant, where else better to plant a a lighthouse shining in the darkness, directing uh, souls to safe harbor in Christ, lest they shipwreck their lives and their souls and die in their sins. What a tragedy. So that Corinthianizers were just the kind of folks the Lord was looking for. He came to seek and save the lost. And sometimes we forget that, right? A lot of people will say, are you really going to start a church? Where? Are you kidding me? And perhaps he had to clear that up with some misguided pharisaical type self-righteous people uh, who despised those sinners in Corinth and were offended. And maybe Paul had a quote, Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners. So these Corinthians are well qualified for eternal life because God justifies the ungodly, I'm quoting the scriptures, through faith. And the way to get right with God is not clean up your act, it's come to his son. So that means anybody, no matter how wicked and flagrant your sin, you're qualified to live forever with Christ simply by trusting in him. His blood was shed for all of that nastiness. And he says, come to me and live. So, yeah, uh, isn't it interesting before we dive in, really, that these flagrant sinners of Corinth and not the social elites of Athens make for more ready converts. You see, uh, one writer said, flagrant sinners can feel the raw emptiness within unbelieving intellectuals have their hearts dulled by their own pride. So if you you understand how morally corrupt and depraved Corinthian culture was, then you'll understand why the church struggled so much. Uh, No church has so many problems as the Corinthians. And and their sexual immorality is a problem. And uh, they're suing each other uh, in court. They're getting drunk on the communion wine. You know, these are our Corinthianizers who get saved. And then, uh, you know, hard habits are hard to break. Anybody uh, agree with that Uh, or know how that feels? Verse 2 and 3, be that as it may, God brings uh, new friends, a new friend in the form of Aquila here a fellow ethnically Jewish uh, man. It's a twofer because his wife Priscilla is indeed filled with the Holy Spirit and a real delight. And they're really uh, heroes in the New Testament. They open their home and Paul's last words in 2 Timothy at the end of his life, because they're going to be friends here on to the end, is to greet them in their, they, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, host the church of Ephesus. It starts in their home because they're going to travel with Paul from Corinth in a year and a half to Ephesus, just so you know. He says a beautiful thing about them. 
uh, to the Romans in, in chapter 16. He says, they are my partners in ministry who have risked their own necks for my life. So it's a great thing. You know, no man is an island. It's just not good to be isolated. Friendships are important. They're essential in life, uh, whether we think so or or not. Uh, They're indispensable in Christian ministry. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. And so the Christian who's a loner by choice is a Christian who's missing out on the quality of life and surely the effectiveness of Christian ministry. Uh, And by the way, if you need more friends or want more friends, Proverbs 18 and verse 24 says you, you have to be friendly. That's how you get friends. (laughs) So check that box. Uh, So Paul's been alone uh, for a season here uh, since he arrived in Athens and all the way to Corinth now. So it's maybe a couple months or more, not by choice, but by God's providence. The team, he always travels with the team, with friends. You do ministry with friends uh, in the Lord. Uh, Luke, Silas, Timothy, they're, they're traveling behind. They're, 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 they're establishing the churches and, uh, and they're coming uh, uh, from behind. They're going to find uh, him in Corinth. So they're going to catch up. But in the meantime, uh, the Lord is kind to Paul and gives them this dear couple. And uh, they become fast uh, friends. And so they have much in common as we kind of look at the paragraph here. Um, Aquila and the Apostle Paul are bo- both born and raised in Turkey, modern day uh, Turkey. So they have that in common. They're ethnic Jews, and so uh, they're racially Jews. And um, it says of Aquila and Priscilla that they had been living in Italy, in Rome, uh, uh, but uh, they got deported, they got kicked out. So that's another thing they have in common with Paul. Uh, Paul's been kicked out of practically every town he's ever <laughs> visited. And so, yeah, they, they have a lot to talk about. Maybe they're speaking Hebrew to one another. They're of the many languages, no doubt, that they speak. Uh, now, why did they get kicked out, the Jews, from uh, Emperor Claudius? Well, the Jews were considered, the history books tell us, uh, that the Jews were considered troublemakers because they didn't fit into the Roman uh, culture. They would not worship Caesar, which every citizen had to do. <laughs> you had to worship Caesar as God and say Caesar is Lord to get your papers to work and all of this stuff. Um, they refused to do that. They hated the idols. They hated their holidays. Uh, every cultic custom and immoral practice they abhorred. The Jews, they did. They did it. They, they were considered no fun. They were considered intolerant, judgmental, and narrow-minded. Sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, on top of this, uh, they had this in common. They were both leather workers by trade. So every Jewish boy was required to learn a trade. No matter what you wanted to do in life, you had to learn a trade, even if you wanted to go off with some academic uh, pursuit because it was considered wise. Now, nowadays, days in Jewish homes, um, it's all about medical school, right? So that they can say, my son, the doctor, right? <laughs> but I digress. Uh, uh, but uh, so these two boys grew up learning to work with leather 
And uh, this is how Paul supported himself mostly, uh, mostly during his ministry. Sometimes he accepted support, other times he, he worked. And he did this, he told the Corinthians in chapter 9 of his first letter, he goes, just so you know, those who are full-time gospel preachers, God has ordained it that they make their living by the gospel. He said, now for me, in my case, to pull the rug out from underneath uh, my accusers, who like to say and slander me as I'm in it for the money and I'm a con artist, uh, I like to get to, to uh, show that that's impossible because I didn't take a penny from these churches. Now, once in a while, he does receive support when he thinks it's wise. And so, yeah, verse uh, 4 um, they, uh, he leads them to Christ, obviously. We just, it doesn't even have to tell us that. And that they're going to work together on Saturdays with their Hebrew family there at the synagogue, trying to get their fellow Jews on board with the Messiah. So, verses 5 and 6 when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively. So when the team comes, something happens that enables him to be freed up so that he can be in the synagogue full-time preparing, full-time teaching that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, it's a very strong word filled with violence, uh, he shook out his clothes in protest. It's very similar to shaking your sandals off with the dust and all of that. I'll talk about it. And he says to them, okay, your blood is on your own heads. And I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Corinthianizers. All right. Gentiles just means nations. It means not Jewish. So the Corinthians who weren't Jewish, he's going to go to them, he says. And so uh, note takers, round number, I don't know. We've lost count with all the trouble in the synagogues. And so... The gospel divides people. That's what it is. Uh, God asks for allegiance, and he calls us out, and he says, uh, this is the new way to think about God and right and wrong, and when allegiances are on the line, uh, sparks can fly, and so we, we know that, right? And so the team arrives, and um, Paul's freed up, verse 5. Uh, he can now devote himself, and, and the word devote there is interesting. It means pressed in spirit, Pressed in spirit. So every time you see Paul doing anything, it's out of this brokenheartedness, out of this compassion for people around him that are missing out, missing out on life, living in darkness. And when he knows the answer, he's got it right there. And he, and he just has this um, compelling uh, prompt in him that, that makes him want to help people. So uh, he doesn't want anybody to perish on his watch. And so uh, uh, so we know from 2 Corinthians 11 verse 8 that the Philippians sent money with Timothy for Paul. So Lydia and the gang in Philippi took an offering and said, get this to Paul. And so she shares in some of the wondrous things that God is doing in Corinth. So he's able to kind of ramp up the teaching, which ramps up the uh, tension there in the synagogue. And of course, we've talked about this many times, he's uh, evangelizing the Jewish community in these pagan cities first, because inside those walls and those walls alone, uh, people had a working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and a biblical worldview. So he goes there and after Saturday, after Saturday, after Saturday, about sh- and showing these Jews 
that look at take a look at this. Micah 5 2. He's born in Bethlehem. Uh, Isaiah 7:14, to a virgin. Uh, check this out in Isaiah 53. The Messiah has to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah 53, right here. Uh, look at this in Psalm 22. He would die by crucifixion 700 years before the first person was ever crucified. They didn't even know what it was. And yet David is prophesying. They stretched out my hands and put nails piercing my hands and my feet. 700 years before such a thing was even invented. So he shows that to them and that he would rise from the dead in Psalm 16 and converts are just piling up. There's not much to argue with when you can show it right there to a Jew who believes the scriptures and then you just keep showing them, look it, look it, look it. They're like, we're in. And so the more that they piled up, the more Christian baptisms that were a daily occurrence, uh, the more it hardened the hearts of those who were rejecting. They became jealous and they were resenting. uh, And they were blaming the Christians. They became abusive to the Christians as if it's their fault. It's not their fault. (laughs) The one to blame is Jesus. Look what Matthew 10 says, Jesus speaking. Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to your families and your communities and everybody just holding hands together and accept one another's worldviews. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come as a result of my coming. A man will be against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. And by the way, if you try to change that and you love your father and mother more than me and you're like, okay, uh, you know, I won't be a Christian because it upsets you, dad, and you'll write me out of the inheritance. If you, if you prefer your father over the truth of God who made you and the world, you're not worthy of me. And if you try to mitigate and avoid the conflict in because your son or your daughter is upset and going to cause all kinds of trouble and so you're, you're not going to come to Christ because of that. He goes, that's not going to work because I'm God. And this truth is, goes deeper than how comfortable you are at Thanksgiving. And so, yeah. That those are words that we all have to live by as hard as they are. There's just no fixing it. That's what happens. Uh, Jesus didn't come to do that as a result of his coming. That is just a natural consequence. People go left or they go right, and sometimes it makes for uh, tension. And so in this case, they're blaspheming them. The word to uh, abuse them is the word to blaspheme. So because God's involved and the Bible's involved and the gospel's involved and God's people are involved, it, it kind of uh, heightens the egregiousness of the sin and he calls it to blasphemy. And the word means to insult, uh, to violently attack or to mock. And so that created an unworkable uh, situation there in the synagogue. And so Paul's going to say, well, we're, we're going to give you what you want and we're going to cease and des- desist in this uh, regard. We're going to go to uh, the secular uh, Corinthians around us and we'll stop telling you about Jesus. But as he does that, he shakes out his clothes to get the dust off. And that means we have nothing more in common not even the dust of the synagogue, 
that's on both of us, no longer. Not even one speck of dust do we have in common. In other words, as we say, we wash our hands of this, meaning it's, I'm no longer liable. I'm no longer responsible for keep on warning you. Now he says, your blood is on your own head, meaning the dire consequences that may come to you as a result of you uh, ignoring my warning is 100% on you. So if you end up perishing, don't blame me because my hands are clean. So what he's saying is he's got an an honorable discharge uh, from his a moral obligation. And so this has an implication that's kind of sobering to me and to every Christian. It seems to me that Paul thinks that God is holding him accountable for certain, not everybody, not every passerby in our life, but there are key acquaintances that God feels that we are morally obligated. They're in harm's way. You know it's truth about their destiny. They don't know it, but you have an opportunity. You have a relationship with them that you should be able to, in, in goodness and morality and common sense, in Christian love, to reach out and make sure that they adequately understand the risk they're taking by um, ignoring the gospel. Now, yeah, yeah we... We err on the side of being obnoxious, sorry. Uh, that's what we do. We keep at it, keep at it, keep at it until there's a little bit of an explosion. And then we say, okay, okay, fine. Um, uh, that's just how it goes. And so we try to know when enough is enough. Uh, but, but when you read the description of hell, sorry. Sorry. We just don't want you to go there. That's all. And... Uh, so if you do go there and you're in this service, don't look at any of us as responsible. It's 100% on you. Um, that said, uh, I just love that the hopefulness, the hopefulness and the love of God, that God loves everybody and he puts us in places where we'll hear the gospel because he wills that none perish, but everyone come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Verses 7 and 8, then Paul left the synagogue as he promised, and and this is hilarious, and they went next door to the house of Titius, not Titus, there's Titius Justus. He's a Gentile, he's a a Corinthian who happens to, he's not Jewish ethnically, but he's a part of the synagogue because he's uh, in relationship with the God of Israel there, and he believes in the Bible and he gets saved. And he happens to share his house in the Greek, shares a wall with the synagogue. That's how close it is. And and so he's like, hey, I got saved. Hey, we can't do it here anymore. They're kicking us out. Come to my house. We'll start the church there. Right next door. Guess who gets saved? Crispus. Crispus is the synagogue. I call him the pastor. He's in charge of the synagogue, right? And so Pastor Crispus and his whole entire household believe in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard him and believed and they were baptized. And so big 
explosions are happening of goodness and conversions, but it's a recipe for disaster uh, to be right next door, the startup church uh, from from the synagogue. But it's God's providence, you know, and Paul must know he has a choice. And Conventional wisdom, when church splits happen, uh, you go across town. You don't start across the street, you know, but that's what happens, and God has a purpose in it. So Titius Justice offers his home. It's probably large. It's got a big front room there. And so, yeah, and then Crispus and all the people who loved Pastor Crispus, Rabbi Crispus, uh, they are all getting saved. And with more and more Saturdays, <laughs> they, they're walking in to the same place, right, in the almost parallel sidewalks, right, or front walks. And, and into one group, there's not singing. The Jews really don't sing. Well, they're singing in the Christian gathering and there's excitement and there are families and there's baptisms and lives are being changed and uh, people are giving in offerings and just the opposites happening. The sermons are boring and they're about the sermons are about you know today we're going to learn the memorize the 616 laws of the Old Testament you know I'd rather go to Titius Justice House there with the music and the happy that's going on there and so as they're interacting they have to interact they see each other every single day morning noon and night they see each other it's one thing to be out of sight out of mind but now the tension's building and there are threats there are insults intimidation and it's getting to Paul. How do we know that Paul is sort of um, afraid and it's affecting his teaching? How do we know that? Verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and in the Greek it says, stop being afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't censor yourself. Don't, don't, don't pull back. Don't be silent. For I'm with you. No one's going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. That's an amazing line. <laughs> so Paul stayed for a year and a half there. The only place he stays longer is Ephesus. And that's three years. Uh, so he's going to stay there a big chunk of time. Teaching them the word of God. So let's talk about this, a personal promise to encourage Paul. Now, the reason I say Paul's afraid is because you don't tell somebody stop being afraid if they're not afraid. It wouldn't make any sense. And you wouldn't tell them, no, keep on talking. No, no, keep on talking. Don't be silent. If they were keeping on talking and not being silent, what's happening here? Paul's been through this routine on several occasions. He knows what happens. They get kicked out of the synagogue, and then there's a beatdown every single time where somebody can end up dead like him, right? And so he's concerned about these people. From what he's saying, is he going to say something that's going to be used to uh, inflame and enrage? And what's that noise out there in the foyer? And he's distracted. And maybe I should rephrase that. 
Maybe I should soften that. Maybe I shouldn't even say that. Maybe that's a subject I should not talk about because I'm going to kind of poke somebody in the eye and stir up the bees' nest, and there's going to be a big article. Whoops, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should just be quiet, right? And he says, "Uh, no, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm going to give you a promise that says... Come rain, come shine, whatever goes on in Corinth, it's going to be okay. So take that promise, put it on your little lectern, Paul, and just know, whatever you do, stand up for the truth, speak the truth, make a stand for righteousness, and be faithful to the gospel and your calling in life, and it will be okay. I promise, signed God. Put that there, and then just rest. And so... That's what's going on here. No need for you to fear, he says that, um, and, and keep on speaking. What a gift. Can you imagine? Maybe you're thinking, I wish I had a promise, personal promise like that, that God is with me and for me and he's going to use everything for good and that at the end of the day it's all going to work out for good. Wish I had that. Oh, <laughs> you do you do you have it nothing he says to Paul in that promise is is anything different than what he's going to say to you and me Um, in many many ways Uh, Charles Spurgeon said about Jesus promise to him he says three things and he says Jesus promise to Paul highlights three beautiful things Uh, it signifies number one the nearness of Jesus. Number two, his love for Paul. Number three, God's readiness to come to his rescue. And I just love that. And so, and then he says, and by the way, I've got many people belong to me in this city. What? The Corinthianizers. They're famous. Where are the many people who belong to you? They're not saved yet, Paul. They're disguised. You don't see past the disguise? Of their sensual sinning? Oh, no, no, no. Many of them are going to be brothers and sisters in the Lord. Many of them are going to be your closest friends. So you have to treat them that way. You can't look at the city as this is an impossible situation filled with all of these rebels and these depraved and perverted souls doing these crazy, terrible things. No, Paul. While that may be true, I want you to see through the eyes of faith and the potential that many of them belong to God and that they will one day, uh, their ultimate destiny will be realized when they hear the gospel through your lips and leave the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of God's son. So he says, I'll keep you safe while you reach them. And so, yeah. <laughs> How do you know that the vilest, most hostile uh, opposition to the gospel isn't really a future brother or sister in the Lord? Uh, so let's finish up. This is the last paragraph, and then he's off to Ephesus. Let's see what happens here. While Gallia was pro council of Achaia, uh, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charge, here it is, uh, man, he's persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to Jewish law. 
just as Paul was about to speak, I love that. This is my favorite sentence there. Just as he's ready to, 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 to exhale with a defense, Gallio says to the Jews, if your Jews were making a complaint about a real misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But guess what? <laughs> Since it involves questions about words and what's the Hebrew name this mean and your own Mosaic law, settle the matter yourselves. I'm not going to be a judge over these kinds of things. So he had them ejected, violent, violent in the Greek, tossed physically from the court. Then they all turned the crowd turns on Sosthenes. Sosthenes is the new ruler of the synagogue who replaced the guy who got saved. Crispus is out. The new guy who is the real hater because he's leading the way. He uh, gets a smackdown in front of the court because the crowd didn't like the Jews and didn't like the synagogue. So uh, they, they attacked him. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever because he's frustrated at the frivolous lawsuit. They're you know, wasting my time and all of that. So let's talk about this. So number one, Paul was right. He knew it was coming. He sensed the danger. Uh, but the Lord was faithful as well and right. Paul was not harmed. So God didn't promise that they wouldn't try to attack him to harm him, but only uh, the end result was really what he was talking about. They may try, but you will be not harmed. And so, yeah, he's standing there. He's ready to speak, you know, just, uh, but he's got peace in his heart. By the way, this is a big deal. So what they opt for, they think they're, they're really going to hurt the church, the gospel, and Paul. And they're like, don't stir up the mobs. That's not going to work. Don't go before the civil authorities. That's not going to work. Let's go before the Roman proconsul there. Now, the Rome, if you get heard by them, this is a Roman Empire-wide precedent that will stop the gospel and hinder the churches that were already planted. This was a big leap to try to really do permanent worldwide uh, damage. And so there's a lot on the line. Um, but uh, Paul can only hear, I'm with you, Paul. I'm with you, Paul. This is going to be okay. And so uh, as to the charges, uh, they should have hired better Jewish lawyers on this. All right, listen, because <clears throat> they make the mistake. They, they go exclusively on religious in nature charges. Paul and his company are convincing Jews to worship God contrary to Jewish religion, you know? And, 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 he's th and the guy's thinking, how does that involve me or us? And how is that even a crime? They're telling you all about this savior and they want you to come to a savior. How is that a crime? Just shut your windows, toss them out, and ignore them. What are you bringing to a Roman court for? He's not happy. And by the way, they weren't uh, encouraging the people to worship against Jewish laws. They're, they're, they're encouraging Jews to receive their Jewish Messiah. So stop it already. All right. Gallio rolls his eyes. He grimaces in pain and disdain. He says, oh, my goodness, what a waste of my time. And uh, so I love this. Just as he's, and has this ever happened to you? It has happened to me. 
just as he's about to open his mouth and say, well, actually, we're not teaching Jews. Just he's, he's just ready to say it. Gallio does it for him. He's just ready to say, and Gallio says, what are you guys thinking? This is really dumb. You know, I, I have a time when I was just ready to say something and it changed like that. I got hauled into the dean's office at that college I was teaching at the, in the East Bay. And apparently I said something about the gospel. And a student went to the dean to get me in trouble. The dean came into the lunchroom and said, Mr. Reinman, I'd like to speak with you in my office. So I get into the office. I see on a piece of paper, I've told you this before, uh, in front of me, I'm reading it upside down. And it says in red, Jesus died for our sins. So now I know what it's going to be about. right? She says, now, a student came and said, in her English class, grammar and punctuation. Uh, I'm not sure how relevant this is and how you worked it in, but that you said Jesus died for our sins, and she's offended. So I start. I'm just like, I took the breath, and she says, God hand it to you. You worked in religion? That's kind of what they need these days. They... <laughs> I'm like, and then I go, oh, <laughs> wow. She goes, you know, my hat's off to you. She goes, you know, um, she goes, I'm a Catholic. I just think that uh, they're off on the, a bad track. And, uh, you know, but just can you just be a little more subtle, Mr. Ryman? A little more subtle. And I said, I'll do my best. And, uh, yeah, so God, God is good to us, you know. And, um, yeah, so these these things, uh, this is what's happening, you know. Uh, he's he's upset, and so uh, he 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 dismisses the case, uh, has them tossed out, ejected, and uh, much to the delight of the crowd that couldn't stand them anyway, uh, they start beating down the 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 litigants and uh, poor Sosthenes he has to learn the hard way here's the lesson that all of us we could have told them bro you know the lesson we all got to learn stop fighting God stop it your conscience has screamed at you you know there's a God at some level you know the world is trying to seduce you you know there's a devil <laughs> So stop it. You're going to get burned. You're going to have to come the hard way. And so, yeah. And then, you know, being aggressive, trying to hurt people, it just never works. Uh, Proverbs 26 to Sosthenes. Uh, if you set a trap for others, you're going to get caught in the trap yourself. That's perfect what happens here. He's the bad guy. He's saying, oh, he's lying to us. He's preaching false doctrine. He's horrible. And we can't stand this Jesus thing. And yeah, stop him, you know? And then he gets a smack down like that. Now, something amazing happens as the governor turns a blind eye because the governor's like, teach him a lesson, guys. I never want to see his face in this courtroom again. So if you smack him down, then mm, he won't bring another frivolous religious lawsuit, right? So while he's getting beat up, something amazing happens in the days to come to Sosthenes. Guess what? Sosthenes becomes a Christian. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
writing to the Corinthians, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, who's my new BFF and partner in ministry <laughs> here. Uh, I just want you to know, in the eternal word of God, Sosthenes, who once hated all things gospel and tried to harm and take down the apostle Paul is now so close to him, so important in the mission and ministry to the Corinthians that he's named in the first letter to that church family. By the way, Brother Sosthenes and they all marvel. They all marvel. What happened? What happened to Mr. Hater of the Gospel? What happened? Well, you know what happened when all when he was getting beaten half to death. Where were all his fellow Jews? They fled for their lives, of course. Who was there to help him get home? The defendants, the Christians, Paul. So who carried him? Who bandaged him up? Who nursed him back to health? I mean, they lived next door to each other. Dr. Luke, the Christians who who made them meals, who helped them pay the medical bills, who visited and prayed over them, the Christians. That's what we do. And there's nothing more (laughs) burning coals of conviction than when we bless the Sosthenes in our lives. When instead of hating and resenting and becoming bitter and hateful and angry, that we become loving and kind, that we bless those who persecute us, that if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing so, he will have such burning conviction that the Corinthianizer will become a Christian. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your amazing word. Lord, we all have a Sosthenes, or or, uh, we have struggles, God, with people who have hurt us, harmed us. It's hard to let go. But May your word heal us and bring us comfort as we participate also in communion. What a perfect way to kind of seal the truths of this passage, God, that we would be able to extend the same kind of mercy to those who have uh, persecuted us, that we ourselves, once at odds with you, once perhaps persecutors of the Christian faith, but then once receiving mercy that changed our lives, help us to keep that in mind and to extend it to others the way it's been extended to us through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.